Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. On Spectrum, we cover a wide range of topics that are important to our lives. We feature journalists, authors, scholars, policymakers, activists, scientists, innovators, and some people that just have fascinating stories. Today's guests are two editors, historians, and journalists. John M. Hamilton is the Brazil Professor of Journalism in the Manship School of Mass Communication at LSU. He also is a Global Fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C. He's authored or edited many award-winning books, including Journalism's Roving Eye and Manipulating the Masses. Also, Peter Finn has worked at the Washington Post in various capacities since 1995. He currently is National Security Editor. Previously, he served as Warsaw Bureau Chief, Berlin Bureau Chief, and Moscow Bureau Chief. Peter also is an award-winning author. They talk about their new book, Herbert Corey's Great War, a memoir of WW1 by the American reporter who saw it all. Peter, talk about how you discovered this memoir. Well, Jack, uh, my uh, co-editor, discovered it. He um, was working on his previous book, um, Manipulating the Masses, um, Woodrow Wilson and the Birth of American Propaganda, which was a study of, you know, the Committee on Public Information. He was working in the Library of Congress. Um, Herbert Corey was a journalist who covered uh, World War One, and his papers were in the library. So um, Jack thought it would be useful to go through them. And going through them, he came across this, um, or rather these unpublished memoirs. There were two of them. Um, <clears throat> He started reading them. Um, he quickly realized uh, that Herbert Corey had a very distinctive, delightful, uh, opinionated writing style, and that this book really uh, ought to be brought to the public. And Jack had previously um, edited other um, books on American journalism and the history of American journalism for LSU Press. Um, when I say there were two, there were two memoirs. One was very much focused on World War One, and then there were some kind of additional chapters that on his personal life that really weren't that relevant to his role as a war correspondent from 1914 to 1918. And then there was a second memoir 
that really was about his early life, um, but had uh, an additional amount of material on World War One. So we decided to combine um, from both into a single memoir. Um, and Jack initially approached me asking if I would help with the editing. And it seemed like a fun project once I got to read the manuscript myself. Obviously, we because this was unpublished, um, to our knowledge, no other editor had been through it. Um, normally in the editing process, as you know, there's a lot of give and take between the writer and the editor. Um, there are multiple drafts that go back and forth. That wasn't possible in this instance. Um, so we had to, you know, make our best judgments about what needed to be trimmed, what needed to be slightly rewritten for clarification, what... Um, where uh, Corey was becoming repetitive, and sometimes he was repetitive, um, uh, where he was sometimes a little too intemperate. Um, so instead of a discussion between the editor and the writer, this was really a discussion between me and Jack about, well, what do you think? What should we do here? Um, and through that, we ended up with this with this memoir, which we think is, you know, a really great read uh, from um, a unique reporter in the sense that we don't know of any other American reporters who covered the war from beginning to end. Obviously, people dipped in and out, some for extended periods. And he also was a reporter who um, reported from both sides. He reported from the both the Western and Eastern fronts. He did spend time in Berlin. He did get to go out to the Eastern front with the Germans. So he was quite unusual in that respect. Jack, talk a little bit before we get into his actual war correspondence. This was a reporter that sort of uh, toured the Midwest, so to speak, and had some roots here in Ohio, correct? Yes, he did, actually. Uh, he, he was a Midwesterner who was successful as a journalist. He had actually also been out uh, in the far west and been a cow puncher and worked on a small newspaper out there, maybe two actually. And um, then came back to Ohio and was considered so uh, talented, they sent him to New York. He wrote a <laughs> column called New York Day by Day, uh, which is a title that was used for a, a, several different columnists, but he did um, he had quite a good job of it. And it was inherited by O.O. O. McIntyre, another uh, well-known journalist who was also witty, good feature writer. He ended up going to Europe, though, for Associated Newspapers. Uh, describe that that chain. We really don't know very much about that that organization. It wasn't a high power news service as such, like the Associated Press, for example, or United Press. It was a feature service, essentially, including things like advice columns and uh, cartoons, things like that. But they brought him in as a feature writer. They sent him to Paris. Uh, to or to Europe, London, and then Paris. Uh, among other things, he covered a famous boxing championship match. And then he came back to New York, and uh, his his material obviously had been getting good play in the newspapers that subscribed to the service. And as a result, when the war broke out, they sent him over with no particular uh, timeline on it, because of course no one knew how long the war would last. He came back a couple of times, and as Peter said, and I think this is very important. We can't find anybody who was in the war as long as he was. He got there 
from the very, very beginning, as soon as it was declared, and he hung around afterward. Just so that our listeners and, and you know, a lot of our listeners probably are not familiar with World War One. It's sort of the forgotten war in contemporary history. Uh, the war started, at least Great Britain declared war on Germany in 1914, correct? Why don't you take that, Peter? Yes. Um, I mean, basically, it was a European war with, on one side, France, um, Great Britain and Russia, and then uh, uh, on the other side, um, Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And, um, it and was initially, you know, triggered by an assassination in Sarajevo of an Austro-Hungarian prince. And, um, you know, the the mechanics of mobilization began and uh, you know, the rhetoric of war escalated and these nations kind of tumbled into another vast European war without any of them really understanding how destructive it would be. So our listeners understand that then the war started in 1914, uh, but the United States was isolationist at the time and really didn't enter the war, as I understand it, until April 5th, uh, 1917, uh, after the war had already been going for about three years. Uh, is is that correct? That is correct. Um, and Herbert Corey, um, one of the most, you know, d- interesting things about him is that he was not, um, and you clearly get this from from the memoir, he did not see any U.S. interest in joining the war. And he uh, came to believe that the United States was essentially bamboozled by Allied propaganda, in particular British propaganda, um, that, you know, coaxed um, the United States into into the war and that that came at a moment when the Allies desperately needed the United States for their own survival. So the United States entered in April 1917. Uh, the armistice was signed in November of 1918, meaning the cease of fighting. But then there were a series of treaties uh one including the Treaty of Versailles, coming out of what was called a Paris Peace Conference in 1919 and 1920. And and Herbert Corey was there then as well, correct? He was, yes. Um, his period in Europe was, as we said, unusually long. Um, he also went, uh, and this is a famous, this is a postscript to the, to the book, he um, famously went into uh, Germany um, after the hostilities had ceased against um, the orders of the American expeditionary forces. And at that point, he was under their, um, you know, correspondence at that time wore a uniform. Um, he was under their supervision. They ignored that injunction not to go into Germany. And it led to the AEF um, killing like 17 or more um, stories that Corey had written, along with those of the other journalists that he went in with. 
So, Jack, how prolific was Herbert Corey? I mean, he was there forever. Uh, he you know, was there from 1914. He came back to the U.S. a couple of times, but ni- basically 1914 through uh, the peace conferences in, in 1920. Uh, how prolific was he during that period? Well, we don't have uh, copies of all the articles that he filed, uh, but you have to expect that there were, he filed a lot. He was a very, you could tell he was a very fast writer and he, and he wrote in a style that you don't see too much today. Uh, Peter and I found that quite interesting. It's kind of an offhand way of writing. Uh, what would you, would you call it that Peter? A kind of art, almost smart alecky way. Yeah. Uh, he had a, he had a, he had a very distinctive voice that, you know, um, and he had a freedom to have that voice because he wasn't expected to report on the news of the day. He was expected to produce human interest stories that would take um, people into the war and give them some taste of what it felt like on the ground to be either a soldier or a civilian or or a general or whoever, um, a nurse. And he wrote those kinds of stories. But he, he had a very... Um, as I said, kind of arch opinionated voice. Um, and he didn't hesitate to, he certainly included it in his memoir and some of his reportage, um, you know, has the same kind of voice. I think you called it a, a cranky style. Yeah. I, I, it, <laughs> that was Peter's word, but it's a good word. It is cranky style. Also his, his, his reporting, because it wasn't very often, uh, urgent. It wasn't a breaking news story. He mailed in almost everything that he he wrote. There may be a couple of things he didn't, but by and large, everything was sent by mail because it could be published at any time. The other thing to say about him is that he was uh, prolific in a in a but in a paradoxical way. Uh, prolific in the sense that he not only published, uh, you know, produced a lot of news stories, and he also produced magazine articles. Uh, that were in Scribner's and National Geographic. And uh, so he got a lot of play that way. The one thing he didn't do that's really quite interesting is he didn't write a memoir. Here's the guy who was there the whole time and he never write a, wrote a memoir that was published. Best we can make out, he wrote this way toward the end of his life. He wrote some other books. He made a point of saying he wasn't going to write a memoir. And the reason he made that point was that so many people who did cover the war, even if they were only there for a couple of weeks, literally, were writing memoirs, but he didn't do it. And actually, he had a memoir that, that could have been done and particularly could have been fashionable right after the war, when a lot of Americans found themselves, instead of being patriotic, found themselves wondering if we hadn't, to use Peter's term, bamboozled and propagandized into the war by the British in particular. But he didn't. Uh, he got around to writing this. It, if you see the manuscript, the way it appeared in the Library of Congress, it's just a bunch of pages uh, put together with a rubber band. Uh, chapters are duplicates. Uh, it's almost one version through the typewriter. Uh, so whether he, and he was getting older at that point, apparently, uh, whether he thought he was going to get this published or not, I can't say. Well, he took that as, I understand it, as a sort of badge of honor that he didn't write a book about uh, his experiences and that he did not go on the lecture circuit. Uh, He sort of uh, uh, poo-pooed that whole concept, correct? Yes, I think that was part part of his personality. I mean, uh, 
you know, he not only wrote uh, in a somewhat cranky style, I think he was a kind of cranky person. Um, and he would adopt these opinions. And, you know, I imagine it was very hard to shift him off him, shift, shift him off them. And, you know, he got it into his head that there was something um, that he shouldn't do. Uh, and that was write a memoir where it's, it's not entirely clear why he was so averse to it, probably because everyone and their mother at least it seemed to him, uh, wrote a memoir, even if they spent like one month covering the war, they came back, got a contract and wrote, you know, World War One and me. And uh, Corey was completely opposed to doing that. Let's let's for our listeners see if there's any comparison. I, I think some people remember some of the World War Two correspondence, Edward R. Murrow. Uh, among many others, uh, names that are recognizable. You know, Herbert Corey's name is not recognizable to the average person. Ernie Pyle was in World War II, uh, but not Herbert Corey. Uh, talk about, is there a similarity between the two, uh, and what are the similarities and what are the differences? Well, there were names, the big names that, who covered the war. Uh, and, and there were some who covered most of it. And, and, and by the way, to be really clear about this, there were a few reporters who were, who were based as correspondents in Europe at the time the war started, like Paul Scott Maurer with the Chicago Daily News, who carried on covering Paris uh, and, and France, uh, but also covered the war too. Uh, in fact, he was a sensational reporter. The, the point with Corey is he was the, he was the single longest war correspondent who was sent to cover the war. And that's what he did hundred uh, percent of the time. Uh, Paul Scott Maurer's reporting was very well uh, appreciated. Wythe Williams was another one whose reporting was well appreciated. Very big names that we remember today, like Hayward Brune, he covered the war until he got, <laughs> until he was forbidden to come back because he broke the censorship rules, which was rare by the way. Uh, so there were names that would have been recognizable even in the 1930s and 40s because those people went on to be well-known uh, reporters. Uh, some names uh, we know very well, but in a different context, like Lowell Thomas, who went became a very famous uh, travel writer, and uh, he, he was a young reporter at the time of the war. But you said at the beginning of this, Tom, that World War I is not a war remembered the way World War II is, and that's true. Uh, and that has an impact on us not only not remembering the war, we don't remember the reporters as well as we did uh, World War II reporters. So he had some unique styles of, of getting where nobody else went. Uh, he was on the German front lines, correct? And, and he somehow wiggled his way to get many places that other people did not go or dared not go. Yeah, I think that that's just the mark of a really good reporter, um, getting to places where people don't want you to go. Um, you know, I, I don't think it was particularly onerous for an American um, to get to Berlin. Um, and he went, despite the fact that those Americans who were in Berlin were subject to some abuse that they were, you know, pro-German um, when that was not the case. Once in Berlin, he did 
eventually, um, after much effort, persuade the Germans to take him out to the front. Um, you know, these were somewhat controlled environments um, where you went with the military or a military escort and what you could see was somewhat limited. But Corey made the most of this. And separate from that, he, you know, he traveled independently. You know, he traveled independently to see fighting in Belgium. He traveled independently to Italy to see what was going on there. He ran into trouble with the authorities many times over the course of the war. Um, so for me, Corey uh, and his, you know, his willingness um, to go places and to risk uh, his own personal safety was just a mark of what a, what a really terrific reporter he was. And, and this, I think, is reflected in his memoir. In uh, an article in uh, the Washington Post on, on June 4th, of this year, 2022, uh, you talked about when he came back to the United States and went to a speaking engagement in in uh, April of 1917, and he talked about you know how he had pedaled, maybe soft pedaled, uh, what the war was really like, and and he reflected on how he sort of had some self-hatred for doing that. Couldn't you talk about that? Uh, yeah. You know, at the time, um, when you read his stories, you don't see them as being particularly critical of the war. You see them as being human interest stories uh, that may have a little message woven in that would raise some questions. But by and large, whether he was on the German side or the Allied side, he was writing the way his editors wanted him to write. And that was what bothered him, that he realized that he was being constrained not only by military censors, whether it be British or French or concerns what the Germans would think, but also because the editors wanted patriotic stories. This is a very important aspect of news coverage in World War I, which was that reporters understood that they were expected to be patriotic. And so even journalists like uh, uh, Randolph Hearst, William Randolph Hearst, you know, they were sometimes critical of maybe an inadequate defense spending or inadequate armament production. But they weren't really questioning the fundamental aspects of the war at all. And Corey had, as Peter just said, concerns about whether or not this was a war that we should be in. And he, he intensely disliked the fact that he was constantly being fenced back by military censors, his own censors, and then, of course, um, the, the editors. The book he wrote, the book we have, we produced here, um, is a book that couldn't have been written during the war. Uh, and uh, so it's definitely a post-war book. And it reflects, and I think one of the great values of this book, not only because it's a good read, is that it gives you a picture of a kind of a uh, on the ground picture of what it was like to be a reporter. Uh, there's a companion book to it that was also done in the same LSU series by Edward Kennedy, who was a very important AP correspondent in World War II and uh, ended up being the head of the whole AP operation in Europe, but also was a terrific reporter. In fact, got into France with the Maquis, got into Paris, I should say, even before the allied troops did. And he broke 
the story that the war, that an armistice had been signed or a surrender had been signed before the censors wanted him to report it. It's a long story of how this happened. But in the end, the AP fired him uh, for reporting a story that had been public knowledge, but uh, the, they were told by the censors not to report it. And he, he finally broke on this point. And so those two books together tell you that it, how in those two wars, journalists really were uh, found it very difficult to report what they really saw and to tell the whole story. You, you you talk about the fact that he, in his memoir, talked about these obstacles that uh, reporters faced, and and in in some detail, uh, did he also enter his personal opinion about that, or was it more just reportage? He he did break a story early in the war about how the British were manipulating um, copy, um, which nearly landed him in some trouble with the uh, British authorities. Um, but for the most part, you know, the report, his actual contemporaneous reporting uh, did not include the kind of, you know, ranting about censorship that you see in the memoir. You know, the story that he got in trouble for with the British is a pretty interesting story. Uh, and we pieced it. We have a long footnote to explain some of it. But basically, he pointed out that British censors were not just stopping stories. They were rewriting them. They were rewriting, rewriting correspondence stories. And this really incensed him. And he called attention to it. And, and by the way, then the British pulled back on doing that, although initially they were, as Peter said, they were pretty unhappy about it. Uh, it's hard to overstate how heavy-handed the British could be. We, we think of the enemy, in this case, Germany, being heavy-handed. But the British were, were pretty merciless, and they, they did everything they thought they could get away with, honestly, when it comes to um, trying to, uh, as I said, trying, trying to uh, fence back what correspondents wrote or thought. Saw. When he was in Germany and behind the German lines or in the German front lines, behind the lines and talking about foot soldiers and, and non-combatants in that area, was there a public perception that he was pro-German? I mean, it, that's a fairly dangerous thing to do, is it not? Well, this was pre um American entry into the war. So uh, Americans, you know, there were American correspondents who went to Germany. The United States was viewed as a neutral at that point. Um, but there was, you know, strong pro-allied um, opinion in the United States, um, pro-British, pro-French, particularly even though there was a major isolationist streak in the country and people did not want to go to war, elite opinion you know, newspaper opinion was broadly sympathetic to the Allies. And therefore, American correspondents in Germany writing about, even factually, about the fact that the Germans were doing relatively well militarily was unacceptable to them. And they were then accused of being German stooges. This whole idea of misinformation um, from World War One. 
And Jack, I know that your your former book on on propaganda uh, talk, talked about this, but you know, it, it, sort of Herbert Corey saw it firsthand and 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 up close, and it seemed from what I've read that that it riled him uh, quite a bit, but it hasn't changed that much from then to today, correct? That's definitely your question, Peter. Oh, well, it, it references your book. But yes, I think the impulse of governments to control information, uh, even democratic governments, you know, persists. Um, it's the job of reporters to resist that. Um, we can see in Russia how, you know, the invasion of Ukraine is not an invasion. It's not a war. It's a special military operation that uh, the Kremlin imposes that language on the Russian media. Um, you know, so there are strong echoes there with how previous governments in previous wars have attempted to completely control um, the narrative and news from the front in particular. Um, and, you know, people like Corey um, and others were resisting that um, their ability as Western reporters to do that at that time was more constrained than Western reporters now. Um, Corey, as we mentioned, once America entered the war, was in uniform and essentially part of the American forces and seen as such, had the status of an officer. Um, and his dispatches were subject to military censorship. Um, that has faded out, but there are some echoes of that. If you look at, you know, the Iraq war or the war in Afghanistan, American conti reporters continue to embed with U.S. forces, but they also, you know, have reporters acting independently. Um, and the desire of the Pentagon to control the message is, um, is no less strong now as it was for American officers in World War One. Peter, why don't you say something about, since you yourself have covered these wars and, and have embedded, why don't you say something about uh, one of the factors that certainly is different, which is you can directly call the uh, news desk at the Washington Post rather than having to submit your story to censorship. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, most reporters have satellite and other equipment that allows them to both call the news desk and upload their stories directly. Um, so there's no intermediary as there was with Corey, where your dispatch would go through, literally go through the hands of um, a military censor who would then take a red pencil to parts of it if they didn't like it. Um, but there, that's not to say there are no breaks on people who are embedded with forces now. If, for instance, um, a U.S. reporter w was embedded with American forces and revealed, for instance, their position or something that would make them vulnerable to attack, that person is, and that appeared in the newspaper, um, then that person would be probably expelled uh, from the embed um, immediately. There are pictures uh, that uh, are important uh, to this story and to the memoir, but uh, talk about the picture that was chosen for the cover. It has a backstory. Corey took some pictures that have ended up in the Library of Congress. 
Uh, and so we found several. It's hard to decide in some cases whether they were pictures he took or not. Uh, we did include them in the book. They weren't well identified. But this one is obviously one where he's, he's on the front lines and Peter's the one who identified it among all the others as being the perfect one for the cover, and it is. And he's not in, a, in an AEF uniform, a military uniform. He's in civilian clothes. So it's really quite interesting. I don't know if he posed for that picture or if somebody just happened to take it of him when he was looking over the parapet. Uh, but it's a good way to think about what it means to be a war correspondent. And there's a certain... Um, so the, the fact that he's in civilian clothes suggests that this picture was taken, um, you know, prior to the U.S. Ent entry into the war. But also, I mean... There's a heavy risk involved in sticking your head up over the trenches and, you know, looking across to the other lines with the binoculars, uh, given the risk of a sniper seeing you. Um, and there were snipers on both sides. Um, so, you know, I, I just found it a really, really compelling photo. Um, also, you know, in fact, we don't even know which front lines he was, he was on. No. Or whose trenches those are. It wasn't marked on the picture and nothing, no. just the no. picture, right? No. Let me ask, uh, finally, what can journalists of today or war correspondents of today learn from this memoir? I think, you know, I can... Uh, skepticism about the official line that's not to that's not to be confused with cynicism but skepticism um you know people try and spin the story and we see on both sides of a conflict and we're seeing that currently um in the war in russia and ukraine obviously it's vastly more severe on the russian side than the ukrainian side but the ukrainians have a story they want to tell and sometimes they get unhappy with stories they don't like. Um, so, you know, I think it's the job of war correspondents uh, then and now to be skeptical, to be fearless, to be willing to go where the fighting is, to talk to people up and down the ranks, not just to the press officers or the senior officers, but also to the foot soldiers, the people doing the actual fighting to also talk to as many civilians as possible um, in and around the fighting um, and just to, you know, maintain that willingness to be surprised as Corey was often. Jack, you, you've spent a lot of time studying this portion of, of history. Do you, do you find lessons to be learned from that period? Well, I think the lesson uh, that that Peter tells is the, the by far the most important one, uh, and the need to be vigilant that uh, and, and independent, vigilant about what one side says or the other, and the need to be independent. Of course, when you cover a war and you're involved in it, which happened beginning in 1917, this becomes even more difficult. Uh, it's just hard because it's, you're with people who are your own people and they're the ones that are being killed and, and you're on one side of the lines and not the other in most cases. Uh, I think also there's something about Corey that I find rather charming. 
more charming, in fact, than I actually find Ernie Pyle, who is celebrated for his great work covering soldiers and their plight and so forth. And of course, Ernie Pyle lost his life in the Pacific. He was shot by a sniper. Uh, so I don't want to say he's not a good journalist, but there's a little bit more of an edge, I find, to Corey. Uh, again, you've got to be balanced here because Pyle did go after what he felt was uh, things that were being done to the imperiled troops, and he could he could go after the establishment. He identified with the troops. But Corey ha does have a kind of detachment, a kind of wry detachment, and I like that kind of journalism. Uh, he was a little bit more of a risk taker as a journalist, and sometimes I think our reporting today can be very good and very insightful, but it um, it doesn't have that sort of featureish quality that I like about Corey. Gentlemen, thank you so much for talking about this book. Uh, it's available, I know, through uh, LSU uh, Press, but also at almost any bookstore. Uh, any uh, particular ways of getting this book, Jack? Well, it's on Amazon. It's easy to get through the regular uh, online services. And, and your local independent bookstore will certainly order it for you. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate your time. Thank Thanks you. Thanks a lot. Today's guests have been journalists and authors John M. Hamilton and Peter Finn talking about their new book, Herbert Corey's Great War, a memoir of World War I by the American reporter who saw it all. Spectrum is produced by WWB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available through the NPR podcast directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover in the future, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's Hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Have a good day, everyone. Mm -hmm.